0: has the power to inspire I have often wondered if our perception of the sacred in nature is something that is inherent in nature or is it something we bring to nature recently it was recommended to me to read dark green religion a book Bron Taylor. Bron Taylor is a professor of religion and nature at the University of Florida and also a Carson fellow at the Rachel Carson Center. After reading Dark Green Nature, I simply had to have Bron Taylor join me to share his thoughts about where we are as a culture. And to talk about our relationship with the sacred in nature. My name is Stefan Van Norten, and this is Nature Revisited. So, Bron, I'd like to thank you for joining me for this discussion on the sense of the sacred in nature. For me, this inquiry kind of started when I was in my garden, and I had a very strong experience of something sacred, which got me to thinking, is there something in nature that is inherently sacred, or is that sense of the sacred in nature something that humans bring to it? So I'm going to start with the word sacred. So, for purposes of this conversation, how would you define sacred, and how is its meaning evolving particularly when it refers to nature?
1: Well, first of all, Stefan um it's great to be with you and your listeners well, to venture an answer about the meaning of the sacred, we would need i think to also say something about terms that are typically associated with it, such as religion and spirituality. In contemporary parlance or contemporary language, people often contrast religion with spirituality, as you well know. For many, religion is understood to involve beliefs and practices related to immaterial divine beings or forces, some might say invisible divine beings, and it's organized and institutional in some way. People typically consider spirituality, on the other hand, to be more personal, involving one's deepest moral values and profound aesthetic or even mystical experiences. Many people today consider themselves spiritual but not religious. Folks who consider themselves spiritual are more likely to be metaphysically agnostic, less likely to worship in traditional ways or hold orthodox religious beliefs, Practitioners of such spiritualities often participate in ritualized or therapeutic means to promote personal growth and healing. Those who consider themselves spiritual tend also to be engaged with environmental and social justice causes. Spirituality is also seen as involving a quest to find one's true, authentic self. Now, when thinking about both religion and spirituality, a good starting point are scholarly understandings that trace... Early understandings of the word religion to the Latin root "lig," meaning to bind or tie fast, or "religiare," which can be rendered to reconnect from the Latin "re," meaning again, and "ligare" to connect. This would suggest that religion involves that which connects or binds people to that which they most value, depend on, and consider sacred. Of course, for anything to be sacred, set off and sublime or holy in some way, other things must be mundane or profane, or things that were sacred can be desecrated and their sacrality damaged or undone. Thus, the sacred typically involves some kind of binary, but it can have to do with many special things, times, processes, practices, places, and experience. And it tends to have two important characteristics, providing ultimate meaning and transcendent power. And it often also leads to people having powerful experiences wherein they feel transformed. And this is often related to physical, spiritual, and even planetary healing.
0: How do you see the word sacred evolving? And is it changing to represent a modern culture? Historical evidence
1: indicates that since Earth Day, growing proportions of humankind have come to consider nature itself, sometimes expressed as Mother Earth, to be sacred. This is really remarkable when you think about it, especially where this is taking place in the Western world, because the Abrahamic religions, uh, which is a shorthand way of speaking about Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam, they all consider nature worship to be one of the greatest spiritual dangers, the danger of idolatry the peril of trusting or worshiping in anything other than the one true God. But for these individuals, nature is worthy of reverence
0: or even worship. I think, as, as you might agree, most indigenous cultures have a deep sense of nature as sacred. When do you think the Western culture lost that sense of the sacredness of nature? Well, the short answer
1: is that the Western tradition and its peoples are deeply conflicted about whether, and if so, in what way nature should be considered sacred. And if it is, what sort of behavior this enjoins? Let me put it this way. Human beings share the same emotional and cognitive infrastructure. So whatever their differences in time and space, it's unsurprising that some people have similar experiences. It's unsurprising, therefore, that many people, Western and not, have a deep appreciation for the beauties of nature. Yet most people, at least for the last several thousand years, have lived in religious agricultures. Consequently, the natures they tend to be most fond of are those most congenial to their agricultural ways of life. Wild places and organisms that prey on their domesticated crops and animals are often vilified, including in religious texts. In the Western tradition, for example, Consider all of the negative statements about wolves, which are compared unfavorably to sheep. So there's both appreciation, fear, and loathing toward nature in agricultural societies, not only in Western ones. So I'm first responding, as you can see, to the stereotype that Western societies are more anti-nature than non-Western ones, or the view that the ambivalence toward nature found among a wide range of societies is something new. It's really not. Most Scholarly analysts have labeled this sort of thinking as the myth of the noble savage or the ecological Indian. The challenge here is to separate the myths from the realities. First, I begin by stressing that there have been tens of thousands of indigenous societies, as we've come to call them. There are still approximately 5,000 such societies in existence. Among these, there are tremendous differences with regard to the ways environmental perceptions and practices are woven into their cultural traditions. And often there are significant differences within these societies as well. Some of which is because few of them are isolated from external pressures and influences. My point here is that we should be cautious about making generalizations about such societies. With these cautions in mind, there are some perceptions, values, and practices which sometimes are nested within what we call religion that do tend to promote environmentally sustainable livelihoods and lifeways. As you suggest, this often involves perceptions in various ways that natural entities, systems, and organisms are sacred or otherwise worthy of respect and reverence. And such perceptions are often rooted in a tradition's overall worldview and expressed through its cosmogony, its stories about how the world came to be, through its rituals, and through its values, which specify how to be in proper relationship
0: with Earth's organisms and environmental systems. So what are some of the ways we can learn from indigenous cultures about the effects and the importance of the sacred and how we we apply them to ours?
1: Well, one of the most exciting and valuable areas of scholarly inquiry today has been the effort to understand what uh, have come to be called indigenous knowledge systems or traditional ecological knowledge. Such studies ideally are conducted in collaboration with indigenous knowledge holders some of whom have also earned academic degrees from Western educational institutions. This research has illuminated the ways indigenous societies have often fused their profound understandings of ecosystems and the species that constitute them with their cultural beliefs, values, and practices in ways that help to maintain the health and resilience of these peoples and their habitats. Among the findings about these societies that can be applied by those who do not belong to them is that it is possible to structure a society that works with and mimics biological processes. Biomimicry, as some call this idea, can be a valuable goal as any society seeks to create sustainable socio-ecological systems.
0: So how important do you think it is for any culture to have a sense or a concept of the sacred, particularly in their relationship to nature? And how can we foster that concept and develop one in our own culture? And how essential do you think it is to our survival? Well, I'm
1: glad you asked that because I think the answer flows pretty uh, directly from my previous comments about indigenous knowledge systems. One reason these systems have typically been good at regulating the behavior of their members is the way the ethical prescriptions are ultimately religious in nature. Put simply, in one way or the other, and sometimes expressed with various words and in different ways, such societies consider nature to be sacred and worthy of reverent care. Interestingly, during a period of increasing globalization, which includes accelerating environmental alarm, indigenous societies, even those that have not traditionally had female earth goddesses or notions of a sacred earth, are finding that such ideas provide valuable common ground in the global struggle to protect earth's biocultural diversity. And this brings me to an important part of your question. I think one reason environmentally concerned people of all sorts are increasingly using notions of the sacredness of earth is not only because they feel that way, but because they consider such expressions to provide a strategy to underscore their view that protecting the biosphere and its denizens is their ultimate concern
0: and is a moral duty. So how important is ritual in our relationship with nature and The sublime. Well, it really depends on what one means by ritual.
1: If pilgrimage to a place where one can have experiences of belonging and connection to nature as a whole, or feel kinship with non-human organisms, or experience awe, wonder, and delight in the power, mystery, and beauty of nature, or even experience terror in the face of its powerful and uh, dangerous forces, then... Arguably, ritual is essential. Of course, many scholars consider ritual to be a central aspect of religion, a way people's perception of the sacred is evoked and reinforced. Indeed, there are scores of ways in which rituals, broadly defined, kindle and express perceptions that nature is sacred, and I provide lots of examples of that in dark green religion. But one thing that's kind of interesting when we think about this is that the foremost spiritual epistemology, if we can call it that, that, a spiritual way of knowing in green subcultures around the world is that it's critically important for people to get out and to experience relatively intact biological systems firsthand. And the view tends to be that when one does that, if one is alert to the liveliness there, one can experience have experiences that lead to profound senses of belonging and the value and even the sacredness of such places. Since most people are becoming urbanized, they're going to have less sort of regular occasions for such experiences. And I think this is why so many recommend various practices that are designed to get people to kind of evoke and awaken a kind of natural biophilia or love for nature that they believe is is a part of the human genome, but that can be repressed if it's not awakened and nurtured in a society.
0: One of the areas that I really did find fascinating in your book was when you were talking about people like Gary Snyder and Edward Abbey, who are from a period that is known as the Beat Generation. Can you talk a little bit about how their view of the sacredness of nature, and if and how they may have influenced our relationship to nature. So Gary Snyder is one of the most
1: prominent environmental poets and thinkers of the 20th century. He's still with us today, and he wrote a fascinating and really path-breaking book called Turtle Island. And it was a book of poetry, but also it included an essay called The Four Changes, and it kind of set out the kinds of changes that he was arguing we needed to make to radically reform our relationships with nature and transform our society in ways that would treat it with reverence and respect. He also studied Zen Buddhism in Japan very seriously and and had a long-term interest in, in, in indigenous societies. Edward Abbey is the Southwestern novelist whose most beloved book is Desert Solitaire, which is a meditation on his time as a uh, ranger at Arches National Park. But he also was quite a character, uh, an anarchist ideologically. He uh, wrote a book called The Monkey Wrench Gang. Uh, they didn't come out of nowhere. They were influenced by the social ferment that was beginning in the United States during the 1950s. Gary Snyder was was largely responsible for articulating what's become known as bioregionalism, which is uh, the idea that we should dramatically decentralize forms of political authority, reorient our identities to the watersheds and ecoregions in which we live. And Abby was, was really urging direct action resistance to environmentally destructive attitudes. So they were both, they, on the one hand, they reflected the times in which they were situated, but they also dramatically contributed to them and advanced them. Uh, and there were many differences between them. Uh, they had a very interesting correspondence about those things but what they certainly shared was a perception that immersing oneself in wild ecosystems is the most important pathway to a proper spiritual perception which includes profound feelings of obligation to earth's wild
0: diversity that that word obligation do you feel that, that man has an obligation to nature
1: that that's a good question and it it you know my aboriginal training is in ethics, and ethics is all about what are we morally obligated to do? What ought we to do? How ought we to behave? And I certainly feel like our species has profound moral obligations both to one another, to other humans. Now, once you deeply embraced an ecological and an evolutionary worldview, you realize that, All ethics is ultimately entangled with and dependent on the uh, habitats of the earth. And whether we're only concerned about human beings, which I think is a problematic ethical position, or concerned about all living things, even if we're only concerned about human beings, you can get an awful lot of aughts out of an understanding of what humans need to not only survive, but to flourish. So environmental protection, for those who are anthropocentric or human-centered in their ethical obligation, environmental protection is essential if you understand our ultimate dependence on Earth's environmental systems, that there's an even deeper moral obligation if you think that every living thing and environmental systems themselves have intrinsic value. This is often put in the language of the sacred, to say life is sacred. And if life is sacred, then one has an obligation to ensure that that life itself can survive and flourish. And since we are in a period of dramatic anthropogenic species extinctions, which are accelerating, clearly something is not right if you believe that all species have a right to be here. And I do. I think all organisms, all species, got here through exactly the same processes, uh, what Darwin called the struggle for existence. And we, as ethical beings with sentiments and empathy as part of our emotional infrastructure, we can empathize with all other living beings and their own struggles for existence. And as Aldo Leopold, the great 20th century ecologist philosopher put it, we should do what we can to get out of the way of the survival struggle of other species. We can argue a lot about the details, and we should. To answer the question in broad strokes, do we have an obligation to nature writ large, not only to human beings? I think we have an obligation to nature because in my view, it has intrinsic value But I think we also have an obligation to nature, because we are not only kin to all other living species, we're kin to our own species, and we have obligation to the human
0: species. Do you think that technology and the sacred can coexist?
1: Well, they can and they do. Although technologies can and do destroy what some people consider to be sacred, right? On the other hand, there are also what I call technologies of the sacred, namely things people make that are designed to evoke or reinforce perceptions of the sacred. One of the things I think about here are surfboards, since I'm an old surfer, and how surfboards are designed to give people liminal experiences of, of various sorts. In some cases, that it really has profound spiritual implications for people. Now, I, I contend quite broadly that the arts understood to include theatrical performances, music, filmmaking, painting, photography, novels, poetry, are often also sacred arts. They're designed to express and promote perceptions of nature as sacred. And of course, there are scientific technologies that enable us to better understand and even be in awe of nature's processes, mysteries, dangers, and beauties. And these can also evoke perceptions of nature's sacredness. Think, for example, of the images from space made by powerful telescopes or the photographs taken from spacecraft of our own home planet. As you know, many astronauts and others viewing these photos from space say these images have awakened a sense of the preciousness and fragility of the Earth. And some of these used the term sacred to convey
0: this newfound appreciation. So is our culture so large and so inundated with stimuli that we can't have a sense of the sacred or the the sublime, that it's just too overwhelming?
1: Well, I don't think so. As I document in Dark Green Religion, the kind of spirituality that sees the the Earth and its uh, living systems as sacred and that consider protecting it to be a moral obligation in fact, has tremendous cultural traction around the world. And such spiritualities these days are competing with the world's predominant religions and largely within what uh, scholars are now calling the sector of society known as the nuns, you know, those who have no religious affiliation. But within that group of nuns, there are many who have these kinds of feelings of belonging and connection to nature. When they say that they're not religiously affiliated, because it's because there's no church of dark green religion. But what I've tried to do in the book is to illustrate that you don't need an institution for there to be an emerging religion that is expressed and promoted in a host of ways
0: by diverse social actors around the world. So looking towards the future, when it comes to some of these issues, how do we install the idea of the sacred and the sublime to our children.
1: Well, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier about fundamental spiritual epistemology. Now, maybe that's a little high highfalutin way to put it, but I'm not quite sure how else to put it. The primary spiritual epistemology of greens all over the world. And that is that the best way for people to come to appreciate the sacredness of nature and its value is to experience it viscerally through one's own senses. And the best way to do that is in places where, where nature is still quite lively and diverse, full of diverse organisms and energies. If one has children or one works with children, it's to get them into these places. And also, while there, to kind of model for them one's own wonder and delight in the beauties and mysteries of nature which is its own way of expressing to them its value. The ritual dimension typically is to do things that put people in places
0: that are designed to alert them to the liveliness of the world. So how important do you think it is that our culture develops or rediscovers? And you've already said there's there's a lot of people who have discovered it already. How important do you think it is for our culture, or any culture, to have a sense of the sacred as part of their fabric? Well, I'm not sure that the the word itself matters so much as the
1: the feeling and the values that, that go with the perception. If we go back to that definition that I started with, the sacred as it's traditionally understood has to do with experiences of profound meaning that's related to physical, spiritual, and even planetary well-being. You know, words are just words, really. We use them to try to illuminate the world, to say something important about the world. I think there's a reason that even people who are entirely secular or naturalistic still tend to rely on religious terminology when talking about what they find most important and meaningful is because religious terminology is really a way to say, this is what I think is is really important, is really special. These are my ultimate concerns. Religious terminology, including rhetorics of the sacred, are a way of expressing that which is most important to you. And I think that's why this term has cultural traction. This notion of the sacred is one of those words I think that people can, even without my kind of academic definition of it, uh if people hear the word they they at least sort of know what it means. i think I think they sort of know it means something that that's that's really, really important and and valuable. The notion uh, of of the earth as sacred as a sacred whole could provide the emotional infrastructure for a kind of civil earth religion, or what Dudney called a terrapolitan earth civilization, where one's foremost sense of identity and loyalty is to the biosphere as a whole, and that other identities that we have, for example, as a citizen of a given nation, or of a state, or a county, or a watershed, or an ethnic group, would be secondary to the foremost identity as an earthling among a host of different earthling species, all of whom belong here and none of whom deserve to be here more than the others because we all got here in the same way. There are trends in this direction where a lot of people, but have other forms of loyalty and citizenship to one's own watershed, to one's own ecoregion, and to the biosphere as a whole. We have within our own genome different strategies for survival and replication. But with seven and a half billion humans on Earth, arguably the, the traits that promote cooperation are the ones that are the most likely to help us get through the current predicaments that we've put ourselves in. And time will only tell whether enough of our species recognizes the peril that we're in and is willing to support to do what's necessary. We really didn't evolve to deal with such a rapidly accelerating environmental crisis. So to me, the, the jury's just still out whether in this crisis our species is going to be up to the adaptation and the rapidity of it that's necessary. Time will tell, and it won't take that long to know.
0: enjoyed my conversation with Braun Taylor. And if you are interested, please check out his book, Dark Green Religion. Also, if you enjoyed this episode of Nature Revisited, please share with friends, family, and colleagues, and help spread the word. The music for this episode is from The Trouble with Wilderness by Ben Cosgrove. The title is Meltwater. You can follow Nature Revisited on Instagram, Facebook, or at our website, NordenProductions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan van Norden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join me for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember... We are nature.